This is Bonjour Chai, the Boy Who Cried Wolf edition. I'm Avi Feinwald in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal, and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we talk about the latest hate crime report from Statistics Canada. Do they tell the whole story? We talk to former cop Mark Mendelson to find out, and David has a conversation with actor Jake Epstein. But first, Alana, David, how you guys doing? Well, I'm living my Alana, best you... mile end life. Do we always just talk at the same time? Is that our thing now? <laughs> it's totally I was going to cool. throw it to you. Alana, for those of us who are not Montrealers, what's the um, mile end? It's a mix between chassids and hipsters, which is a really interesting, unique blend that I happen to quite like. Um, the area has a lot of character, there's a lot of classic Montreal walk ups. And some old spots. My grandparents grew up in this neighborhood. And my, when my grandfather comes to visit, because I used to live in this neighborhood, he used to point out, like, oh, do you see that Farmer Pre? It was actually a movie theater. And then you look, and there's, like, this engraved, interesting, like, lion. And it's like, ooh, that could have been, like, a fancy movie theater. So there's a lot of history. My grandmother has a very similar story about the Maya Land, except she points it out and she says, see that bookstore across from the church? We used to have a store there. And that church used to always say, do not shop because those, the Jews run that shop. Do not go there, everybody. So that's a, it's a pretty similar kind of history, I think, about grandparents in the Maya Land. Did she, did she, re- did she report that as a hate crime? <laughs> You know what? Even if she did back then, I don't think any police would have cared. So my story that is very similar to that is when we moved back. Um, so at the time, I guess my daughter was like three or four, my oldest. And uh, we're going through this neighborhood. And uh, just so they can see, we're going with my dad and uh, walking around. And I, I stop at this building at the corner of Park and Laurier. Um, for those of you who are in Montreal and want to get a, a sense of where it's going. And I point at the balcony at the top floor of that building. It's a three-four. It's a four-story building. And I say, you see that balcony? And she goes, yeah. I said, that's where Zadie grew up. And she goes, oh, wow, Zadie was so lucky. I, I was like, why was Zadie so lucky? She because he got to have Starbucks every morning. That's hilarious. Because there's a Starbucks on the ground floor there now. Because <laughs> um, nothing yeah, ever changes. So, um, yeah, that, that's the Maya Land. It's Hasids and hipsters, and exactly. Um, yeah, I, do you know? Do you guys know any Hasids who are hipsters or, or vice I've seen Hasids on bicycles in this area. I met my first one over the summer when I was yeah. in Montreal. I took oh, a really? photo of him. There was a blog for a while called Hasid or Hipster, and, and my <laughs> fr- I had friends that were like qualify as both. I've never met a Hasid hipster, but I would love yeah. to meet one. That sounds like a good time. They don't really like to be honest. I walk in the street, and I don't think people know I'm Jewish. Like, it's like, you know, Friday and I'd be like, oh, have a good job, and they probably won't look me in the eye. So it's not really like the best area for me to um, find community, let's just say. I have a friend who is a slam poet, and he's got like big, big, long payas and a big beard, and he works for Google, and um, he's into punk music. So I guess he totally qualifies as a chassid who is a hipster. Do hipsters work for Google? Is that hipster enough? Maybe. I don't know. Depends which <laughs> department, maybe. I thought Google was supposed to be anti-Semitic now after they had their whole uh, their whole hate hate on for the Jews lately. Everything is anti-Semitic. Do you ever try try to type in Nazi into Google? Right, it, it shows you websites of Nazis. Like it's so, so anti-Semitic. I actually have to think about this topic a lot because of my play, which is about anti-Semitism, and actually it talks about a lot of themes that we've talked about on this show. Um, in the sense of like how far... Can you tell us a bit about the play? Like you're, you're in town for this rehearsal. Yeah, I can tell you a bit about the play. So I play Isabel, who is a Jewish bride. 
And uh, she's marrying a non-Jew, much to the, to the dismay of her family. But he's trying really hard to fit in and win points with the in-laws. And they do the breaking the glass. And then he falls on it and ends up in the hospital. And uh, that's kind of how the play starts. It's a dark comedy. And it goes through a lot of themes about um, anti-Semitism and how far is too far. Because there's this whole kerfuffle that happens um, with uh, a friend who was at the wedding, his best man, who makes a salute that the people in the crowd seem to think was a Nazi salute. Was it a Nazi salute? Was it not? You have to come find out if uh, you come see the show. But there's a lot of conversations about, you know, similar themes to what we've talked about on the show about political correctness and um, are we getting too alarmed? Are we not? And uh, all the emotions that come with weddings and anti-Semitism and friendship. Whoa. There's a lot uh, going on. Is this play called Heil Hitler or something? <laughs> That's what it sounds like. You sound like the anti-Semitic <laughs> no, guy please. in the show. H- Avi lives for his puns. Uh, it's called Mazel Tov, and it's playing at Infinite Theater. Uh, that's the theater company that's putting it on. And uh, the actual show takes place at the Kin Experience, which is close to Place des Arts. And we could uh, link it in the show notes because we actually have a special promo for Bonjour High listeners. Avi, do you want to tell us about it? We do. So uh, they reached out to us. They found out that Alana is on the show. And they're like, uh, if all the people from Bonjour High, not all, anybody who wants to come uh, from Bonjour High wants to come and uh, check out Alana Zakon in her, uh, I was going to say her Montreal theater premiere, but her Montreal post-pandemic theater debut, um, the first time she is... uh, on the boards in Montreal since um, before the pandemic. Uh, come check her out at Kin Experience. It's going to be on May 3rd. We have a special promo code for uh, the Tuesday, May 3rd performance. It'll be uh, $10 off. It's a $20 ticket instead of a $30 ticket. And you just have to use promo code promo uh, when you uh, book the ticket on the website. We will put the link um, to the ticket ticketing website to the Eventbrite on the show page, uh, in the show notes, I should say. And uh, you can just go to Infinity Theater also to check it out. But the promo code is high promo for Tuesday, May 3rd uh, performance. And hopefully we'll get a bunch of uh, Bonjour High listeners to come check out Alana Zakon. Um, I don't know, should we like offer a bonus thing? Like maybe the first drink is on us at the post show, like... Um, beverage uh drinking uh sort of uh we'll have an impromptu talk back maybe on you <laughs> i have to perform again the next you're not day. even going to come join the bonjour high the f- there's a lot of actors who are like can i join virtually <laughs> we will have some talk backs i don't know what on which dates i have a lot of actor friends who are like every night you go out after the show and you have a drink and then i'm like i want to have a brain for performing this many shows but uh, once the run's over, or on, if I have a day off, then sure. We're going to convince Alana to come have a drink with us on Tuesday, May 3rd, um, for her performance of Mazel Tov at Infinite Theater. Um, I do want to call out also from uh, our shows in the past couple of weeks, we've been getting uh, people writing in about their Canadian-born Canadian rabbis. Uh, and I think th- it's so heartening. This is not my nachas, but I'm getting such nachas. Um, but I will call out at least one rabbi from the people that I've been getting uh, messages from. Uh, Rachel Levitsky reached out to me and she said that she wanted to shout out her rabbi, uh, Bill Tepper, who is a family friend, uh, who is a rabbi now in Kingston, Ontario. And she says, I think you guys would like him as he has taught drama and directed community theater. He is hard of hearing, but that hasn't stopped him from doing the work he loves. So Rabbi Bill Tepper, our uh, hats are tipped off to you. 
and uh, you keep doing what you do and uh, Yasher Koach for your great service to the Canadian Jewish community. I'd love to meet this rabbi, Bill. You know, it's it's really interesting to see uh, hard of hearing uh, people that are actors or in the theater performance world or in the uh, movie performance world after this uh, Sunday night's uh, surprise win. Uh, from what I understand, I'm not a big follower of the Oscars, but CODA won this year for uh, Best Picture, and it uh, involves a lot of uh, hard of hearing actors. Uh, have you guys seen it? Uh, what's your... Uh... I have not seen it yet. No, I haven't seen it either, but I will write... I will soon, okay. definitely. I promise. Done. Um, are you like? Have you guys ever worked with a hard of hearing actor? Is how does that like? Is that interesting? I don't know. I have not, but there is a theater company in Vancouver. I'd have to look up the name, but um, they work with all uh, actors with disabilities, and um, that's kind of like the mandate of the company. So there's certainly a lot of talk out there in BC about making theater accessible for people of all different kind of backgrounds and abilities. I think there's even a theater in Tel Aviv that works with hard of hearing um, deaf and blind actors as well, too. When I was there, I, uh, I walked by it. I didn't see a performance there. But in Calgary as well, too, there's something called Inside Out Theater, and they work primarily with actors with disabilities. So I think it's wonderful. I think we need more representation in that field. Are you guys Oscars people at all? Do you generally watch? Did you watch this week? What was like... I'm, I'm I'm so sad I missed like I missed it I saw all the memes post when they were just blowing up all over social media obviously with Will and Chris Rock Ooh, but yes now that I don't have ca- yeah that thing that thing that we're all talking about but the thing is it's like now that I don't have cable anymore I don't watch the Oscars and it's just it feels like it's a big shindig for nothing that I'm super interested in I think you're nodding along Alana you feel the same way well, I was actually nodding, nodding along at the cable thing because I think when I was younger, it was like, oh, just turn the TV on. It's on this channel. You watch it. We used to actually put out red towels and make like a red carpet when we were kids. And I, my bat mitzvah oh my was God. California themed. And we had- Did this, you like, walk down giant... with your cow, with the cow dress <laughs> and have the red carpet? I don't carpet think that and, like... cow costume existed at that point. That was when I was like three years old. But um, at my bat mitzvah, it, it was Hollywood themed and we had this like cardboard cutout Academy Award. And so that was like a, a later addition to the red towels was like this giant Academy Award made out of like cardboard. Um, and we would make like fake cocktails that were non-alcoholic. Like it was really fun as a kid. I feel like I've watched the Oscars like once mock, since I became. Mocktails, mock you mean? Mocktails, yeah. I did actually see a good number of the nominated films this year, uh, but... I just got to town. I had a bridal shower on Sunday. There was just a lot going on, and I was starting rehearsals the next day, so I didn't prioritize watching the Oscars. I, I never, rarely, if ever, I can't remember the last time I tuned into the Oscars, and um, and I'm, I just, I don't know why, I just was like, hey, let's check it out tonight, and I started watching, and my wife was sort of like watching from the side. She was just reading, and all of a sudden I was like, wait, wait, did that happen? And I was like not expecting, like something just, it was so like, and I wasn't this like avid like Oscar watcher, so I didn't know like is this a thing? What was going on here? And um, and I had like the worst take ever. By the time it was done, I have to say maybe you guys can help me. I'm throwing actors under the bus, and maybe please help me. Please help your your profession um, and defend it. I I just because this is a bad take, and I I feel like it's a bad take, but I need to figure out how to make it better or how to like redeem it or just please tell me that this is the worst thing that I should say. Uh, Like my initial reaction to Will Smith's speech was, I don't know if I trust somebody whose job it is to cry on cue 
like in front of a camera and and like and that's all he does in the pivotal moments of like all of his big movies is he just starts weeping and you know like breaking down and getting you to feel emotional for him and even forgetting about the, the content of his speech I was like huh like I think that if I was an actor and I could do this that would probably be the one thing that I could do to redeem what I just did in front of you know, a million people. So I hear that you have taken, you've chosen, you're on, you're on team Chris Rock is, is what you're saying right now. Abby. No, no, I'm, That's I'm, what you're I'm saying. not even taking a side of which team on anything on this one. Although sometimes you should be able to take a joke, but, I, but that is beside the point of anything that I'm trying to say here. I'm, I'm not saying rights or wrongs. I'm just saying in this case, there's a bit of wrong here that I just couldn't understand how to, uh, is, is this a bad like why is this a bad take how is this a bad take because i feel it is but i can't quite justify somebody actors tell me why i'm being such an idiot um i haven't actually seen the speech all i know is the vague uh details of what happened that made him slap him but um i will say that i've definitely used my acting chops to get out of um situations like i once got pulled over by a cop for going through a red light and i started crying and it got me out of the ticket so see you know i'm right in that sense i don't think that's such a wrong take but i didn't see this speech and i have no i can't really give an opinion about it because i had somebody who was a non-actor come up to me and say how could you say that? That's you don't even understand the role, like what acting is. It's not about instantly getting into a role, and it's not about just like fake crying whenever you want. It is this real? And he had emotion there. Whoa! You know, I might have said, Alana, oh, you probably got out of the ticket because you were a girl and you were crying, and he just felt awkward. But to be fair, I have cried to get out of a ticket from a police officer too, and it worked. And we're talking. This is actor crying, like fake crying. This is not like real. Avi, the thing you need to know is actor crying is real crying. We're not lying. Of we're course, really, but this we're, is we're like... coming from the truth of our feelings and emotion. But we're just putting it out there as opposed to bottling it all. Joey up. Tribbiani with the hands in the pants, like pulling out like you know a hair or two, and that's how he get. You don't remember that Friends episode? Where he was like trying to coach somebody about crying and he was like that's what i do i just get my hand <laughs> start pulling out a little hair or two or three and then i'm oh and he starts crying and anyways yeah but yes i know it's real crying but it's not about the you're not crying about the thing that you're crying about all very possible i i cannot even delve into his mind or what he was going through before during or after itself those two could have been very very real tears and he could have had a very emotional night but uh, you're right. It could have come from a of, a of an acting perspective. I tend not to believe that because then it feels more forced. And if you watch it, you could believe that he is actually being emotional and he might just feel regret for what he just did, too. Is there anything Jewish that we can uh, talk about around the Oscars? Like, we're just like, what? what is this discussion? I was about to ask, do Jewish actors fake cry on like Tisha B'Av also? No. Like... No. Because no, no. <laughs> Well, if they're you, not feeling like, it, but they're in shul and they want to show how much they're meaningful and like that would be pretty messed up. Um, I would go with no. I'll bring I'll bring up my Jewish version at my nachas at the end of the okay, uh, segment. Um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't find uh, the Oscars to be so Jewy this year. Um, but again, then again, I, I, I don't watch the Oscars that much. So uh, maybe it's not Oscars so goyish. Uh, but is that every year? I think, don't the Jews you know? run Hollywood? Isn't that what people have been saying all along? And uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's a wrap. Let's save that one for our discussion about the Hollywood, uh, the, 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 the Oscars Museum or, or, or maybe our non-discussion about that. But uh, I think that's all we'll say about that.
Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. Two weeks ago, Statistics Canada released their annual report on police-reported hate crimes. And to quote the headline from the CJN, the Jewish community continues to be the most targeted religious group for hate crimes. With us to talk about this is Mark Mendelson, a former Toronto police homicide detective and currently a private investigator and crime expert for Bell Media. Mark, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Hi, and thanks for having me. So Mark, in case you thought I was talking about an old story in my intro there, let me be clear and quote some more CJN headlines. February 28th, 2020. Jews still the most targeted group for hate-motivated crimes. November 30th, 2018, Canadian Jews experienced a spike in hate crimes in 2017. November 2019, 2017, Jews were the most targeted victims of hate crimes in 2016, StatsCan. And yet even more headlines for the Toronto edition. March 21st, 2016, Jews most targeted group in hate crimes, Toronto Police. March 20th, 2017, Jews single most targeted group, Toronto Hate Crimes Report. April 20th, 2018, Jews again head the list of groups targeted by hate crimes in Toronto. And May 15, 2019, Jews, the most targeted group for hate crimes in Toronto. So the standard response every year to these types of reports is that anti-Semitism is rampant and that the Jewish community must remain ever vigilant and report all hate crimes. But here's my theory, Mark, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I think that there are actually way more hate crimes against all other minorities And it's just that other minority groups are either too afraid to go to the police and report every single crime, or it's more difficult to conclusively rule that something was a hate crime when there isn't, you know, a swastika or something to rely on. And on top of all that, other minority groups don't have the same internal media or organizations breathlessly reporting on StatsCan reports and how everybody hates them. So in other words, I think that either Jews are over-reporting every possible incident because they are told that it's the right thing to do, or other minorities are under-reporting them for a variety of reasons, or some combination of the two. Right? Can you help us untangle all of this? I'm going to go with a combination of the two, and I certainly agree with most of what you had just said there. It's certainly been my experience that, uh, you know, there's probably another 75% that never, never got reported because people didn't realize it was a hate crime or they just didn't want to be bothered doing it. They didn't want to be a witness, just like it's so difficult to get witnesses in other crimes as well. So it's certainly underreported. That said, you know, it's clear that the Jewish community in Canada is very organized. Uh, They don't always have to call the police. They can call Congress, they can call B'nai B'rith. There's all kinds of places that they call uh, where they can get uh, information and guidance moving forward. And, and of course, there's a hate crime unit in Toronto as well with, with Toronto police, not the same in other parts of, of the country. Um, but but we're certainly a lot more organized than, than other communities may be. And maybe that's why the, these these numbers are high. I think that the, the rate of, of uh, hate crime directed towards, say, the Asian community, certainly in Toronto, and maybe on the West Coast is also high. A lot of that comes from spinoff from from COVID conspiracy theories, all kinds of things. Those things are not being reported as well. But we have always been an organized uh, community right across this country uh, for decades. And I think that helps, uh, you know, the Jewish communities in all the cities in in, in Canada uh, to at least be able to reach out and get some advice and some guidance as to what, what steps to take next. Was it a crime? 
Is it a one-off incident? Was it a shouting match involving a Hasidic Jew on the street or whatever? Did that make it a crime? Maybe yes, maybe no. But yeah, we, we certainly are covered and the numbers do not reflect, I think, what really takes place in life. Can you then explain how a hate crime is defined in Canada? It, it, it's hard to explain. There, there are hate propaganda laws within Canada, uh, which, which basically if you're advocating for the you know, for, for, the, for the genocide or for, for bodily harm directed towards an identifiable group, quote unquote. And that requires the attorney general's consent in Canada to at least lay that charge. Hate crimes are any crime where one's uh, uh, religion or ethnicity or the color of their skin or, or their, uh, their, their sexual preferences, identities, what have you, are an, an aggravating factor to the crime itself. Um, and I, you know, and then the courts view that as a hate crime. It is a very mitigating factor when it comes time to sentencing at the end of the day. Um, there are just so many ways to get to that place, um, you know, that the police have to make that determination when they take the occurrence. And then eventually the crown will make that determination when it comes to prosecuting as to whether the hate motivation behind it is an aggravating or mitigating factor. So, you know, we were talking a bit about, and I, I want to follow up on this a little bit more. You know, there was an article that I read on uh, buyblacks.com. I actually initially went on there because I was like, well, what do other minority groups um, do when it comes to hate crime reporting? And they are not reporting nearly as much. So the echo chamber of what's going on in other minority medias and other communities doesn't seem to be there. Um, but I found this, you know, I found this article by this uh, woman, Tanya Walker. She's a lawyer, and, and she's pointing out that there is difficulty in pinpointing what hate crime are, right? If there's protests about a ban on Islam outside a mosque, right, are, and people aren't arrested, is that a hate crime, right? Uh, the difficulties in showing motive, right, that, uh, you know, in, the way she says, she says, the main reason is we can never be certain about what's going on in a perpetrator's head or narrow down their motivations to a single cause. Some motives, such as spray painting a swastika in a temple, are obvious. Others, such as vandalizing a vehicle that belongs to a Muslim family, are not as obvious. And I find that, you know, there's something that really resonates with me in that anytime something even remotely small happens, we are reporting that and we're automatically assuming that it's a hate crime. And clearly there are many other communities where the lines are much more amorphous and those communities are not, you know, reporting everything that's going on. So, um, you know, first of all, is that true? Are there people that are underreporting? Are there other communities where a lot of stuff is happening, um, but they're either too afraid or they're too, um, you know, they're not, there's no clear way of defining this as a hate crime, even though it may have actually been, because there's no clear symbol like a swastika being put out there? Well, I, I think that the initial determination is made by the investigating officer at the scene, the uniform officer that takes the report. They speak to witnesses, they speak to the complainant, they speak to uh, um, their supervisors, and, a, and an initial determination is made whether hate was a motivator um, for the incident itself. I mean, if, if there's a car accident between, you know, uh, a, a, an Orthodox Jew and somebody who's not, and there's an argument about the car accident, that doesn't take you to a hate crime. Okay, uh, But if things are said, if certain things are said, suggested, comments made, um, with respect to how the accident happened or why somebody was assaulted, that changes the motivation uh, and that changes the course of the investigation as well. For a lot of communities, for example, uh, you look at the Afghan community and you look at, you look at the, the Chinese community where we're looking at first generation or South American, where the mistrust for the police is horrendous. Okay, They don't view the police as a friend, um, as an ally. 
as as we do in 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 North America, just by the mere fact that through our own life experiences, so they don't have the trust of the police, so they will not go to the police. They mo they may go to their imam, they may go to their mosque, to, to whatever place of worship, and have conversations about it, and may be encouraged to report it to the police. But at the end of the day, if there if there is that inherent mistrust, they won't go, and therefore that doesn't get reported. You, you talked about, you know, police who, the first police officer who comes to the scene itself. What type of training do these police officers have? Is it everyone who gets a background in, I understand to, you know, what I need to look for for a hate crime at all? Or is it this sort of, it, it just really depends on this particular officer's background at the time? Well, I, I, I think most police forces in Canada, uh, certainly at, at, the, at the police college stage, get training in hate propaganda, in hate literature. Um, and racially motivated crimes. Does that make them an expert? Absolutely not. Do most investigators and detectives in, on, in police forces in Canada come across these types of offenses on a regular basis? Absolutely not. Um, so it's always a learning curve, and that's why they, they reach out to resources. I, I can take you back to the early 80s um, when I, I went into what was essentially the first hate, hate literature uh, neo-Nazi white propaganda investigative unit in the country, and I was the first member. And we dealt with people like Ernst Zundel. And I think back, and cops had no idea who Ernst Zundel was. They they did not know. The public didn't know. Granted, there wasn't the internet. Um, and then as as that whole investigation unfolded and we ended up taking him to court, and that's a whole other podcast and a whole whole other story as to how we got there, um, I remember police officers saying to me at the courthouse at the time, why do we have all these cops here? I don't understand. Is this one guy charged with this offense and we don't see this ever. And then, of course, when they see the reaction of the public towards Ernst Zundel and they see the emotions come out from survivors that came to court and just, just to sit in the courtroom and watch and things of that nature, that's the learning experience that people get. And it's a it's an ongoing educational process and i mean if if you're an rcmp officer in northern alberta you're going to know nothing about anti-semitism let's face it you're just not going to you never experience it but if you're a cop in vancouver or toronto or montreal you're going to be exposed to it um but there are resources out there there are resources available to officers where they can they can make inquiries and of course crown attorneys uh, and assistant crown attorneys are also trained in this as well and so are judges for that matter because it's important for them to understand it's not just a punch in the face that somebody may have received in an assault. There's a whole there's a whole melange of hate that goes into that in terms of the motivate motivation and how people react to it and how they recover from it that everybody has to be sensitive so how to. How does I'm thinking about this right now and it never occurred to me. How does a white uh, nationalist hate crime get classified? Is it is it anti-Semitic or something else? Because the more I stop to think about it, the, you know, white nationalism and using using especially using symbols that are Nazi symbols that have that history is a whole melange of hatred in and of itself. And yet there's probably some desire to like pinpoint it because a swastika is going to be an anti-Jewish symbol. Um, but that person hates is doing committing a hate crime against gays, against um, black people, against any other form of immigration. And yet um, the pinpointing of that, because it uses a specific symbol, is going to go in one bucket and not in another. And it may not go contrary. It may not go contrary to the criminal code. He For sure. But I'm saying if something like that were to go, you know, and, and, and be classified as a hate crime, 
you know, it feels I and, and again, it's I'm yet another place where I'm trying to like reduce the the level of uh, stats here, and just to try to get a bit of context, we automatically see a swastika, maybe not when it's painted on a synagogue. As I mean, when it is, that's obviously an anti-Jewish right sentiment. But a swastika um, can mean any number of things, and yet we automatically assume that it's uh, an anti-Jewish symbol. Well, that's very true. We that's that's where we go, and and you know, if we go back to the synagogue, of course, spray painting that synagogue, that's the criminal offense of mischief. And then, of course, based on that and based on the evidence that's available there, then it becomes a hate crime. Then it becomes a hate crime and it becomes an aggravating factor later on down the road. But you're right. Somebody, you know, somebody, somebody driving down the street, waving a Nazi flag out of their, out of their passenger window. Uh, is it offensive? Is it horrible? Do we want to see it? Absolutely not. Do we know what it means to, to the Jewish community? Yes. But do we always know what it means to all the other communities who may be offended by it? It's still worthy of an occurrence in terms of, in terms of the police. Because don't forget, the police, they, they, they are proactive and they are reactive. And by being proactive, that's an intelligence-driven type of, uh, of, of police organization as well. They're always collecting intelligence. Who had that Nazi flag? Had they been involved in anything else before? Has their name come up in any other investigations regarding anti-Semitic activity? All of that's intelligence-based information of investigative value. So it's important to report those things as well. Um, you know, and, and the cop will take the report. Will anything happen because of it? Maybe not. Maybe there'll be a door knock on the registered owner's door to find out why he was doing it. And, you know, and, and explaining to them, maybe turn it into an educational moment. I don't know. But at the end of the day, it should be reported because it may lead to other investigative avenues later on down the road. Are there moments when we shouldn't, when things shouldn't be reported? Meaning like if something is so minor that, you know, maybe it's better not to waste, you know, police resources and your time and energy to go and report something if it may not, you know, be qualified as a crime, let alone a hate crime in any way, shape or form. Or, or is it anything, if you think that it's something, you should automatically report it? I'm thinking of an example, right? A few years ago, um, you know, there was snowfall in Montreal overnight and somebody woke up in the morning and there was a swastika painted with, you know, not being painted, just cut out of the snow with a finger on somebody's car, right? Is that something where you go and say that's a hate crime? Or let me be honest, it's not even requiring cleanup. I just have to move my windshield wipers and it's gone. And it may have just been a 15-year-old, you know, that doesn't even know what this means and just going around painting symbols with their fingers or just, you know, uh, drawing things out. And at the end of the day, that that might not be a hate crime, and yet it makes the morning news. It makes the morning news because it's shocking to everybody that people would allow their minds to go to to that place to do that. If you called the police, no, they probably wouldn't come. Uh, but but your complaint will be recorded somewhere along the way within their databases as well. So if 75 people in a nine block radius are reporting swastikas all over the place, maybe it's a different story. I think you've got to pick your battles um, and you have to decide. But you don't always have to just report it to the police. You can report it to your local synagogue and they have. Uh, avenues in certainly in Canada to 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 report it to uh, you know organizations within this country representing the Jewish community and they would want to know about that as well. So not everything is reportable, but you you sort of got to pick your pick and choose your battles. You also talked about you know how things have changed dramatically in the '80s and '90s. Here, I'm I'm just trying to think about the social media landscape the way it is now. It's just it feels like anti-Semitism has increased dramatically. And anytime something happens in Israel, Jews will get the brunt of it in North America itself. So I'm just wondering how has this evolved? How has this changed with Instagram, with Facebook, with all other forms of social media? 
Well, let me take you back to the 80s again when we, when we ended up with Ernst Zundel on, on our plates. And I had been to Zundel's home a number of times, as he often referred to it as the bunker on Carlton Street. And I'd been there. And at that time, let's remember, Zundel was communicating with his followers and those people that espoused his views um, by mail. He was mailing out VHS tapes. He was mailing out cassette tapes. He was mailing out flyers, things of that nature. People, people had to reach out to him in order to receive this material from all over the world. Now, with the push of a button, you can reach millions of people. And it's, it's changed. And who doesn't have access to the internet? Who doesn't have a smartphone now? So, it, it, you know, if Zundel were in today's world, he, he would be reaching literally millions of people a day with, with his literature and his disinformation and his Holocaust denial and misinformation. His trial would have been covered very differently than it was um, back in the 80s. And same with Keekstra. We helped out the RCMP with the Keekstra um, prosecution in Alberta as well. Things have changed. Um, you know, and, and back then people had to reach out to these white supremacists and, 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 and neo-Nazis to be part of that group. Now you can follow them on Instagram. You can follow them on all kinds of different sites, sites that, that we don't even bother looking at in the dark web, where, where people will fuel the things that you, you know, that you think you believe, and you'll find answers to questions that you won't get from mainstream media, and you won't get from talking to your neighbors and friends, but they will they will solidify those thoughts in, in, in your own mind. And all of a sudden you think everything's a big conspiracy. Uh, so it's a very different world now. So, you know, nowadays when, when a swastika ends up painted uh, at a synagogue or on somebody's car, it's out there. It's reaching hundreds of thousands of people as soon as somebody posts that on social media. And it's retweeted and retweeted and resent. So everything has changed, and we're all very much aware of these events as they take place now, whereas in the 80s, we weren't. So, but then what is happening? What is the difference between someone saying something online and then a physical assault happening? How, how do we differentiate the two? And, and maybe this is part of a larger question in terms of how hate crime is defined. Should we all be treating hate crime as the same if someone is saying something online to an actual assault down the road? Well, I guess it depends on what they're saying. If they're breaching, if they're breaching any sections of the criminal code, when that could be threatening, that could be uh, criminal harassment. Um, it could be advocating the genocide of, 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 of a particular people or, or religion or, or racial uh, minority. Then all of a sudden you're, you're getting into that, into that whole hate crime um, you know, area in the criminal code through an online expression. Sure. But if, I mean, I think to, to refine what David is getting at is that, you know, there's a difference between a hate crime that's actually, all of it is bad, right? But a hate crime that is, you know, verbal and words, uh, whether posted or done in person versus an assault against, you know, an Asian individual or an LGBTQ individual, which uh, is far more likely to happen than uh, a, an actual assault that is anti-Semitic in nature, right? Should we be separating those two out and pointing out to the community, well, you know what, we do lead the, uh, you know, the charge, we lead the pack on uh, anti-Semitic, on, you know, hate crimes overall. But let's be honest, they're pale in comparison to the amount of people that get assaulted um, that are Asian and, you know, and, or gay or anything like that. Um, and that there should be some sort of distinction around that. Well, I think there is a distinction. If you're assaulted, you're assaulted. That's contrary to the criminal code of Canada. You're going to get arrested for assault. doesn't matter what the motivation is, as long as somebody's going to complain. 
and, and, and notify the police. Was it hate motivated? That becomes part of the investigation. And that, you know, quite often the person that did it will actually cough up the reasons they did it for whatever reason. They hate this or they hate that. Uh, or it might have been words that were said prior to the physical assault or the threat. Don't forget, you don't have to be assaulted physically to, to commit, you know, to be the victim of an assault. As long as you think that person is going to follow through with that threat or punch you, uh, then it becomes an assault. And that's very, very different than what we read online. And we've got to be careful about what people post online in terms of differentiating between opinion, whether we like it or not, and wh or whether they're crossing the boundaries of the criminal code, and in, in which case there's a police investigation. So they are, they are very different. And, and, and quite often, they, the two of them are combined. People get assaulted, and, and, and they, you know, there are anti-Semitic comments that are made before and after the assault. Being, being Hasidic and walking down the street in Toronto with a black hat on may be the motivation to get punched in the head. For no other reason than that. And that, I would suggest, is a hate crime as well. I, I want to pivot to a little bit of thinking about how we should be addressing things differently if we want to be in a more ideal world, right? Hatred is not going away anytime soon. So, you know, maybe we should be taking a more responsible approach to these reports. So first, how should citizens react when they think that they're the victims of a hate crime, right? How do we get it to the point where uh, maybe members of the Jewish community should be reporting a little less and other communities should be reporting more? How, how do we move that forward, right? As a former police officer, how do you get the community to, um, you know, be less fearful? And how do you get other communities to sort of say, hey, chill out a bit, right? Go maybe report this to the synagogue or to Sija or to B'nai B'rith, but um, record the, the thing, but, you know, let's be responsible. I think the first thing is education. I think that, you know, people need to know what their rights are, what is a crime, what isn't a crime. I mean, in the 80s, my partner and I visited synagogues right across this country and in the United States talking about hate crime and neo-Nazi groups and, and, and white supremacists and things of that nature. And a lot and a lot of people didn't know what the laws were and, and how would how would it would impact on them. And as I said earlier on, we have a very organized community within this country in terms of access to getting information. So a lot of it is education, not just education for members of the Jewish community who may feel they've been assaulted, education to the police, education to the media, and education to the general public as well. And that is, that's being done. I, and I think it's, 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 it's in good shape in the Jewish community. It may not be in such good shape in a lot of the other communities in this country. And that's all about education. And that takes time. That takes years to instill that kind of information and for people to know where they can go if they feel they've been wronged uh, and having the avenues and also having the processes in place to deal with it like we do with CJ and with B'nai B'rith and other, and other organizations as well. And what is, what is the responsibility of the media in these types of, of reporting? What is the responsibility of the media itself in reporting in having the, in reporting these reports better, basically? Uh, what, what do the, what is their responsibility? Well, I think they have to understand the laws. I think they have to report these things when it comes to their attention. I think they have to go a little bit further than just interviewing the victim and, you know, getting to sort of that emotional response and then taking a three second, uh, you know, video shot of the swastika on the side of the, of the synagogue. I think they, they need to go further. They're part of the educational process. They're part of teaching. So I think, you know, I'd, li I'd like to see them go more into the community, into the community organizations to be able to show the general public how this deeply affects not just that particular victim, but everybody in that community. 
And it doesn't have to be just the Jewish community. It should be affecting all kinds of organizations within that community, mosques, Buddhist temples, you name it, go on and on and on. It's all, it's all about teaching and education. And, you know, the, the people that are committing these crimes and they're producing this material and, and sending it out there and online, they know that their followers can go to them to get the answers to all the bizarre questions that they may have that, that just solidify the thoughts that they have in my mind. The Jews run the media, the Jews run the country, and on and on and on. And, and the Holocaust didn't happen and only 90 people died. And, you know, it, you can go on. It's all about teaching and education. And, and, you know, it, it's an ongoing process, but we have to have the patience to do it. But at least in the, certainly in the Jewish community in Canada and, and from what I've seen in the States, it's far more organized and there are far more routes people can go to get the answers to the questions they have. So as a sort of way to wrap this up and, and again, to focus back on the Jewish community, I there's a quote that I found. I was researching all these headlines from the CJN, right? And I went all the way back to 2015 um, and the report from 2015 on uh, that the police find the Jews most targeted for hate crimes, right? And we had a quote here from Len Rudner, right, who was the director of community relations for CJA at the time. And he says, you know, we have to pay attention to these things, but we can't let them define us. There's more to being a Jew in Toronto than being the victim of, a, of hate crimes. And I think that that at the core, right, the seven years that has shifted between then and now um, seems to speak volumes in terms of how many people, maybe it's our fault as media, maybe it's the fault of organizations that report these and report these and report these, um, but we've gotten to the point where as a community, so many people just end up being defined by the fact, as he said, right, in the, the opposite of that, that there isn't more to being a Jew in Toronto than being the victim of a hate crime. Um, is there a way to move beyond that? Is there a way to like create some sort of a, a space for community to be a community? And it's not just the Jewish community. I'm using this as an example because you know I this is a Jewish show and you know we're talking about the Jewish community in general. Um, but to go beyond that and to sort of say, um, don't let yourself be defined by that. Don't always be hyper vigilant for any moment where uh, you might be the victim of something. Um, how do we move forward? And how do we maybe as the media um, cool the jets of the community? Um, moving forward to sort of say, hey, guys, there's more to being a Jew in Toronto than being the victim of a hate crime. Well, it's true. There is more to being a Jew in Toronto. There's no question about it. But I mean, every time every time people get comfortable, something happens. Right. Somebody gets beaten up. There's an assault. There's another there's another spray painting situation or windows broken or breaking in or at a synagogue, things of that nature. And it brings everything back up to the top again and everything percolates. And then it takes a couple of weeks or months and things settle down again. Um, and I, I, and I don't know how you cool it off. I think people, people have to have their wits about them. I mean, you look at synagogues in this city, we've been having police officers during the high holidays at synagogues in Toronto for as long as I can remember. Okay. And it's only now that mosques and other, and other religious, uh, um, temples are, are, are following suit. It's because we have always been proactive. And always done that. And, and you know, we've got, we've got people trained in the synagogues in, in terms of crisis intervention and what to do and things of that nature. So other religions and other religious institutions are, are behind us and they're catching up and they're using the Jewish community as an example of what to do. Not to be hypervisual. You can't live with your head on a swivel. And, and you can't live always thinking that the person next to you is an anti-Semite or a neo-Nazi or a white supremacist. But I think in a big city, um, you have, you, ha you do have to have your wits about you 
And I think that, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but there are a lot of people out there who still view the Jewish community as the source of all evil. Um, and that's not going to change overnight. And we're going to have to live with that. It's, you know, it, you got to put some faith in human nature and some faith in the public. And I, I think it's important to always be vigilant. Mark Mendelson, thank you for joining us. Have a good day. You can find links to the stories we talked about in the show notes. And as always, we would love to hear your thoughts on the topic. Email us at bonjour at thecjn.ca. Let us know what you thought. Jake Epstein is a Canadian actor and singer, probably best known for his work on Degrassi, The Next Generation, playing Craig Manning. I, for one, was a fan. But he also performed on Broadway in the Carol King musical and is now returning to the Toronto stage with a new show, Boy Falls from the Sky, which opens at the Royal Alex Theatre in Toronto April 19th and runs until May 29th. Jake, welcome. David. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a fan of uh, my character on Degrassi. Oh, of course. That was like my whole teenage childhood experience. Right. Was it? I feel like I played a uh, kind of a like an antagonist character. I feel like some people were like, you were on Degrassi. We hated you. <laughs> so I appreciate it. No, I think I love the, the moody nature of it all. It, 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 it struck a chord. It very struck a chord with of me. the day. Yeah, I, they straightened my hair and pulled it over my eye. It was, yeah, super angsty. It was definitely my go-to it's show. It was very, yeah. Um, how are you, man? It's been a while. It's been like at least 10 years since we last did a show together, right? At uh, the Seagull yeah. Theater. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, how? Uh, uh, yeah, how, how have you been? I haven't spoken to you since all... The craziness of the last few years. Are you okay? I feel like every interview, we just need to like be like, are you? Are we okay? It is, it's a true question. And you know what? Like, I don't really talk about it too much, but like with COVID, it's been really great for me just because I allow, like, you know, as an artist, you both know, like sometimes we're running around and we're doing three or four different jobs and we're just burnt out. So many artists I, I speak to just say, I, I've just been so burnt out lately. And I think what the pandemic yeah. allowed at least me to do, I don't know about you, but at least it allowed me time to breathe, refresh and write. So I, I've been doing a lot of writing over the past two years. Yeah. So I've been very grateful. Yeah, that's awesome. You're right. There is That is the silver lining in all this is the the pause that came with all of it, that kind of reset button. And, and you're right, the opportunity to look inward, to do some writing and... And you're doing this podcast, which is excellent. Yeah, so I joined uh, about in November. I joined on this podcast through the CJN. Congrats! What a what a great thing. Yeah, it's been really fun, and it's great to you know meet new yeah. people and and talk to old friends like you. So I guess what I'm just curious about is, you know, we talked about the pandemic, but how's how is it? How does it feel to be back on the stage when theater has been closed for so long? Like you've delayed this show now twice. I uh, I don't know how I'm gonna react when we do our first show, uh, I, uh, yeah, it's going to be emotional. Uh, yeah. I mean, I will say one of the, um, one of the things that I, that I've been really lucky with during the pandemic is having this show to develop. And that's kind of been my thing is that despite lockdowns, I developed the show online or I went and I did it. Um, I did a run in Bob Cajun, Ontario behind a clear, uh, vinyl curtain, which kind of looked like a shower curtain because that was the that was the mandate at the time is that there had to be a curtain between the performer and the audience but i pushed ahead and i kept developing the show and so knowing that eventually i would get to do it hopefully um so it has it's been the total thrill joy of my life to get to work on this 
this thing. It's uh, the most personal thing I've ever done in my life. It was a, a huge risk when I first wrote it. And like, uh, this is beyond. Now I'm, uh, w- you know, gearing up for a run at the Royal Alex Theater in Toronto. It's it's like, it's hilarious to me how life sometimes works out. Uh, so yeah, I'm very excited. I'm, I'm very excited to be back on stage uh, in a major theater in my hometown, it's it's really beyond what I thought was possible. Well, you mentioned it's it's a quite personal story. So can you tell us what Boy Falls from the Sky is about then? Sure. Uh, well, when I was a kid, my dream was to be a Broadway performer. And I was obsessed. And every summer, my parents would drive my sister and I to New York to see a Broadway show. That was our family vacation. And on the ride down, we would imitate all the voices from cast Broadway cast albums we'd listen to we'd like annoy the crap out of my parents and so the show the show is about my adult pursuit of my childhood dream of trying to be a Broadway performer and it's sort of about negotiating the realities of going after your childhood dream as an adult it really uh pulls back the curtain of the reality of show business. Um, It shines a spotlight on the things that people don't really talk about in show business. And uh, my personal story of, of performing on Broadway, and, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler alert because it's like in my bio, but I, you know, originated a leading role in beautiful The Carole King musical. And it was on paper, it was, you know, it was a dream come true. And I've had this very charmed career, but in reality, um, it, there was a, there was a lot of, um, uh, uh, complicated stuff, a lot of, uh, a lot of reality, a lot of growing up that was going on behind the scenes that I never told anyone. And when I eventually moved home from New York, I stopped singing and anyone that asked me about my time on Broadway, I would just say it was great because I didn't want to disappoint anyone. And eventually I started opening up about the reality of my stories of what about my experience in show business and and people started laughing like 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 the stories were funny and relatable and that sort of encouraged me to write them down and that became a cabaret and then slowly it's been developed over the last few years into this into this show called boy falls from the sky what was going on then underneath the surface where you just were you know you were just saying to people oh it's going great i'm on broadway it's everything one expects it to be what was really happening then to jake well i'll tell you i mean i I, you know i don't want to go into too much because i want people to come see the show but i i'll tell you um uh this isn't part of the show but i i i I did um i made my broadway debut playing spider-man in uh spider-man the musical which some people will know is probably the most uh infamous show on broadway it was like it, it was like a punchline on uh, so many injuries going on. Yeah, in fact, if memory serves, I was doing a Ross Petty panto uh, at the time, which was a Toronto tradition, and they would joke about things happening in the world, and there were there were Spider Man jokes in the panto in Toronto. Like that's how kind of that's how famous this this infamous this show was. So I get cast as Spider Man, and. I, you know, I was very lucky because I, I, you know, uh, I I didn't hurt myself in a serious way, but I did sprain both of my ankles and my right wrist. And again, I never told anyone about that. Um, But what I used to do is I would wrap my body in like gauze and in sports tape and I would take painkillers 
And then I would put on my Spider-Man tights and I'd go out as Spider-Man on Broadway and people would see that iconic, heroic thing. And I'd sign autographs at the stage door and I was living my dream and I'd literally come off stage and I was like in so much pain underneath, underneath all that. Um, yeah. So you that's had the idea of like the show must go on constantly and just put on a brave face. I think I was so, uh, I felt like I was so lucky that what right did I have to, to tell anyone about, uh, about how I was struggling at the time. Um, and I also had created a bit of a narrative that I loved, which was that this local Toronto boy was like killing it on Broadway. Um, which wasn't really true. I mean, I, I mean, it was, but it, you know, I didn't want to tarnish that. And um, I had this complicated answer when people would ask me what was it like on Broadway. And I decided instead of, instead of lying or instead of struggling with this answer that I would, I would explain it in a show. And that's kind of the, the joy of theater, right? Is that you get to turn moments of, you know, pain and struggle into like theatrical moments of comedy and joy. Uh, and that kind of alchemy is, is, is really a, a thrill, thrill to get to do. So when you, when you were going through this, all the, all the pain and the frustrations, were ever thinking in that moment, man, this might make a good show one day. Cause sometimes as artists, when we go through the <laughs> crap, when we go through, you know, problems and no. we say, oh, this could be a show. Right. That's funny. Uh, my, uh, my wife, sometimes if one of us is emotional, We'll be emotional and we'll be like, this would be a great close up right now. Uh, actors are so messed up. No, I didn't. I never thought this would make a great show one day. The farthest thing I was like, I hope no one, you know, I'm going to just bury all this because firstly, no one wants to hear it. And secondly, I, I, I don't want to like tarnish it. Uh, you know, I just wanted to, to keep going. And then and then I sort of it all kind of blew up for me in New York. And it was this, um, you know, the reason that, that it kind of came out of me is that my, I keep talking about my, my partner, my wife, Vanessa Smythe, she's an actress as well. And she used to host um, this storytelling night at uh, a Streetcar Crow's Nest in the East End of Toronto. Um, it was called The Spoke. And every week there was a, a weekly topic and, and sh she would tell a story and, and she'd get actors and some non-actors and people would go up and tell a story from their lives a real story that was the one rules that it had to be true and I used to go watch her every week and watch these stories and I, I fell in love with storytelling I fell in love with the just the power of someone uh, with a microphone standing in front of people telling a story and it was immediately so funny and so relatable and uh, Vanessa asked me one week to go up and tell a story and I did and I just found it so relieving to get to to get to talk about uh, truth in front of people and uh, it's not even like I told us a, a story that became a story of my show I told a, a different story but I I, I, I just love storytelling and um, I was I was getting asked to perform uh, uh, my act, uh, once I'd, I'd finished doing Broadway and I didn't have an act, uh, you know, and then my wife was like, write, you know, write these down, write these stories down and talk about them and, and make them fun and funny. 
and see what happens. And, uh, and what came out of me was, was all of this stuff that I, I had just been kind of hiding for a really long time. Yeah, I know. I think I feel quite similarly. Sometimes like those, those stories that are true, that really come from the heart are so much more exciting to watch than someone pretending to be something and, and mimicking something. When you really hear it from the core, you, it, your heart breaks, you're excited, you're, you're engaged more than any. And like Montreal, you know, they had uh, real life storytelling, Toronto, across, uh, across the country, they do these things. And it's, it's a very exciting, engaging thing. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I think there's a reason we're all into reality TV and podcasts and, and there's, you know, documentaries, like there, there is, um, there is nothing like, like the truth, like the power of the truth. There's nothing funnier than the truth. There's nothing sadder than the truth. Um, that being said, I have a responsibility as a storyteller when I'm there on stage. So, you know, it isn't a documentary. I have shaped the stories to be uh, comical. I mean, it's it's a piece of comedy. It's a piece of entertainment first, especially, God, during like this COVID time. I just feel like if, if you're going to get people to come out to the theater, which is a really big deal right now, you know, it's a big, it's, uh, it's a lot of work to get to the theater and you've got to wear a mask and all of it, uh, then it's got to be a great time. So I have, um, with the help of uh, my director and my collaborator, Robert McQueen, we've we've shaped my reality into a piece of theater. And it's not the first time you've done something like that, where, where you're taking a story that may not be your own, but it's a real story. You've collaborated with your mother in the past to write about um, your grandfather and what, what their experience was like in the Holocaust too. So th- this type of collaboration from real life story. Right. So that, I mean, uh, that's a, um, it's a great point. I, I actually wasn't about my grandfather. It was a story that, that we had made up, but you're right. I did, I did write a play with my mom, who's an author of, of, of novels and, and Holocaust, uh, uh, books for, for young readers. And we wrote a play together that was produced at the Harold Green Jewish theater. Yeah, I mean, but it's true. I mean, as an as an actor, as you know, you're always looking to make it seem uh, like it's your own story. Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm a really bad liar, and like as an actor, I'm like, no, I, I'm like, I'm not trying to trick people. I want to, I want to find what about the character is actually real. What 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 is relatable to myself, and so for sure, you're always you're always that muscle is always going, but. Like this, I'm terrified, man. This is like a whole other level. This is like, this is a lot of real. It's a lot of real on stage. Um, I I just think people, you know, uh, it's relieving right now to hear people talk, talk about their truth in an honest way, in a funny way, in a way that's not like, oh, woe is me or pity me. Um, in a way that's comforting right now. I mean, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like people need, need some comfort right now. Yeah. I uh, I do hear you. Uh, I, I want to switch gears slightly just because this is a conversation we've brought up on the past on this podcast in terms of the Hallmark movies. Um, you've been on a, a couple of- I books. listened to the episode, Oh, did you? Okay. Oh, yeah. Of course I did. So then I'm sure you I have did. thoughts and opinions on uh, the things that we brought up. <laughs> we know we talked about mistle, mistletoe and menorahs. You were on. We really right. talked about the idea of, of what these Jewish parts and these Jewish storylines meant for Hallmark. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I w- you know, I, I wish I had um, uh, listened to that episode again as like research for this because I was like, I bet you that's going to come up. Uh, so I'm, a, I'm just a little bit in this moment, if I'm being honest with you, I'm having a hard time just remembering all of the points that you brought up. Uh, I think our, our whole question was, you know, is this yeah. Hallmark industry movie, the 
what they they've done year after year about these mis- about this type of Christmas. Um, very sweet. Right, like, is it appropriate? Is it appropriate? appropriate? Is is it, like, really just Christmas and then you slap a a, a Star of David on it kind of thing? Exactly. Like, does does our background, our culture as Jews, does it fit into it? And I'm just curious how you felt as a Jew with the parts, whether you felt they were appropriate, whether you felt they were tokenism at all, and what you thought about the storylines. It's a great question. It's a great question. Uh, How do I feel about it? So there's two answers I have. One of them is the is the actor answer, which is that as an actor looking for work, <laughs> you're going to do a whatever, lot of things, whatever. right? Yeah, sure. Like you're going to do a lot of things. I, you know, I, I was lucky enough to shoot a Christmas movie during the pandemic when I didn't even think film was ever going to be possible again. I was thrilled to shoot that gig. Um you know, am I super proud of the movie? I, I wouldn't say that I am, um, but I'm very grateful to have the work as an actor. I knew how lucky I was. When I got asked to do Mistletoe and Menorahs, it was like one of the first uh, Jewish stories that it was a real, it was a risk for lifetime. And I remember what I, what I really appreciated about it was that it was the story of a Jewish guy who meets uh, a non-Jewish woman. I have a, my wife is not Jewish. And I remember, um, I remember having to learn about Christmas. I remember going to my first Christmas with her family and she had to kind of tell me, like, I, I felt like an idiot, but I was like, I don't know what this is. I've never, I've never celebrated Christmas before. Now, of course I knew what Christmas was. It wasn't to the, you know, so we did this movie. So there was an element, you talk about truth. There was an element of truth that I really appreciated with the movie. Um, Now that being said, you know, how do I put this in a way that's uh, like not to bash the movie? Cause I'm also proud of the movie, but you know, the audience wasn't Jews. The audience were, Christians in the Midwest who had probably never heard of, you know, a lot of these traditions before. So a lot of it was like the story of Hanukkah, you know? And so, yes, it was, you know, a Jewish person hearing that would be like, obviously, like, of course. So it was, it was not perfect, but I was also proud, you know, I was like, if there's going to be a a movie, a Hanukkah movie, I'm going to star in it. Like I should, why shouldn't I star in it? And then I recently did my second, it was a Hallmark uh, movie that aired um, called Eight Days of Hanukkah or Eight Days of Love. I I can't remember what the the final title was, Um, which was a full, which was a Hanukkah story and had a Jewish producer and had an entirely Jewish cast. Was it a perfect Jewish movie? No, there was a lot of it that I found a little bit cringeworthy. Uh, there was a, you know, I kept thinking like there were, there was a a Hanukkah hunt, which was like an Easter hunt. You know, I was like, the Hanukkah hunt is not a thing, but I also recognized that this was how they were going to be able to sell the movie to the Midwest America was to have some relatable things. Um, so I felt like we pushed the needle a little bit more. And my guess is that if I get, if I'm lucky enough to get to do another movie, and who knows in this industry if I ever will again, I'm hoping that I'll be able to push the needle even more into kind of that authenticity 
Um, you know, and I'm certainly always there sort of fighting to keep, uh, <laughs> to keep these movies as authentic as possible while, you know, ha- the Hallmark executives are on set saying, well, we need to make sure whatever they need to do to sell a movie. So it is a balance. Right. You know, so when I was just sitting down and I was even, I was watching Mistletoe Menorahs with my, my partner who is not Jewish either. And we did find commonality. I think we did find a, a movie that could really bring both of our faiths and cultures together. So I think we really appreciated everything that was being delivered. And well, as you say, you know, maybe it's not perfect and you're going to try to push the needle a bit later on. I think there was elements that we could really take and, and be proud of. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll agree with you there. I feel like as the first time Lifetime had ever done any kind of Jewish movie or a Hanukkah movie, this this was this felt like the uh, a, a pretty good first step. And um, again, I was you know I was certainly proud. I'm proud of my culture, so I'm always you know the December becomes so inundated with Christmas. So why why shouldn't there be other cultures as well? Of course, like the argument is Hanukkah isn't an important holiday, right? That's like that's. It's a minor holiday. There should be the Pesach movie. Absolutely. Jake, you are going to go to Hallmark soon and you are going to pitch them a story about Passover and the relevance for the Jews. You're right. I'm going to write that. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. You'll be in it too, of course. Oh, thank you. We'll get all the, all the Jews, all the Canadian Jews we know. We'll round up. And we'll uh, we'll put on a movie. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Like like uh, when you get the chance to work on a movie and you know what goes into it, which is not just the writing. There is a whole uh, uh, kitchen of cooks, if you will, who have an opinion. And um, but yeah, like like you said, I'm uh, su- I'm super grateful to be in those movies. They're really they're really fun to shoot. They're really joyful. They can be silly, but I know they uh, they they make a lot of people happy. Great. Well, Jake, I want to thank you so much for coming on. And where can people get tickets for your show? Uh, you can go to Mervish.com and uh, get tickets for Boy Falls from the Sky. It's playing uh, April 19th to May 29th at the Royal Alex Theatre in Toronto. Jake, great seeing you. You too, man. Yeah, all the best. Bye. Okay, bye. So last time uh, we were talking about the portion of the week, David, you had left us on a cliffhanger of a question. Um, what was that question? I was desperate to know how I can prove that I am a Kohan. Kohen. So interestingly enough, um, with the rise of uh, DNA tracing and DNA um, availability of, of DNA, um, what do we call it when you check your DNA or sequencing and all of, you know, the home availability of 23andMe uh, and all of, you know, these things. Uh, In the 90s, they started doing research around um, the DNA of Kohanim because if uh, the Kohen gene only goes, uh, the Kohen idea, the idea of the Kohen is patrilineal. It goes from father to son to father to son to son, whatever. Um, Then you should be able to look on the Y chromosome, which is the chromosome that, uh, is male and uh, or that gives us the uh, male uh, type if you are of the male gender um, we generally deal with the Y chromosome and they actually uh, started looking for markers and for a common ancestor of uh, the 
you know, of Kohanim. And there is this thing now uh, called Y-chromosomal Aaron. And Y-chromosomal Aaron, uh, I'm reading from Wikipedia here, is the name given to the hypothesized most recent common ancestor of the patrilineal Jewish priestly caste known as the Kohanim. Uh, according to the traditional understanding of the Hebrew Bible, this ancestor was Aaron, the brother of Moses. So they were able, they were looking to trace whether or not you can find one um, individual from which all Kohanim would descend, and that would, you'd be able to do that with DNA. Uh, and in theory, they, 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 they thought that they found somebody, and I, I'm not like an expert on this, but I'll just read a little bit more from that, that while some early genetic studies were seen as possibly supporting the traditional biblical narrative, this view was subsequently challenged with some researchers arguing that the genetic evidence refutes the idea of a single founder for Jewish Kohanim who lived in biblical times. But there are recent studies that have provided further support for the model of descent from a common ancestor who lived in the first temple period by demonstrating that Kohanim from different Jewish communities form a tight cluster which is specific to the Jewish Kohens. So the idea being that if you are a Kohen from Eastern Europe and there is a Kohen from Yemen, they should be able to find a common ancestor and that would generally be really rare. Um, and again, I'm not a geneticist, so somebody maybe will come on and help us with a little bit more of this. But there is um, DNA evidence that there is tighter clusters of people that are Kohanim that, that have certain uh, markers on their genes for that, uh, you know, common ancestry. But you said it all comes right through the male line. So if hypothetically it was my grandmother who was a Kohen, does that mean that I have like null and void? Does it get passed on to me? Uh, it does not. That is correct, right? So my children, for example, have a mother who is from a Kohen gene, but not my, uh, but not myself, and therefore um, they technically. But because the Kohen, this Kohen marker is on the Y chromosome, it wouldn't be carried through. So then, breaking news right now: David Sklar cannot be classified as a Kohen if it comes from my bubby Dorothy. There you go. Um, so we can get into what that means and why we are, you know, Kohanim and how that works in terms of the trust and, and, and how we carry. Because if you carry this marker, that doesn't automatically make you a Kohen. Um, and if you are missing the marker, it doesn't automatically disqualify you from a Kohen. But it is based on the, the hereditary proof, meaning somebody whose father tells them that they are a Kohen who's, and had they, that person knew because their father told them they were a Kohen is generally the uh, interesting, you know, connection of how we get to Kohanim. But your father told you that you were a Kohen. My father lied to based me. Based on the fact that his mother was a Kohen. Yes, he's been lying to me my entire life. Well, what we should do is really talk more about, and we can save this for another time um, or for another week, uh, the liberal approach to Kohanim and how it differs from the orthodox approach and how in the conservative movement and the reform movement, Kohanim and the uh, Kohen ideas are very, very, um, are used very differently. No, no, I'm sticking with my story of my father's been lying to me my entire life and denied me access to all the glorious things of attending the ceremonies for the, bu the, the, the funerals that I couldn't go to and couldn't do it. So it's, 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 it's fine. Listen, I'll have, a, I'll have a word with my father later this week. It's okay. Whatever you need to get your method acting crying, like get through that place of, you know, getting <laughs> Daddy, to weep. Daddy, why'd you lie to me, Daddy? Um, use it. Um, but what I found interesting and why I thought about the DNA this week was, um, right, it's much more of a medical oriented or biological or thought um, way of thinking about Kohanim and the Kihuna, right, in terms of ancestry. Um, and there's really something interesting about this week's Torah portion in which the Kohen doesn't just have a job of being the uh, person doing, getting all these portions of food and doing the work in the, um, in the temple, 
right, which we spoke about last week also. Um, but they have this really interesting job based on this week and next week's tour portion, which is to identify the uh, tsara'at, which we now... Uh, people used to translate as leprosy or these skin lesions, which would uh, render somebody ritually impure. And it was the job of the Kohen basically to be the dermatologist of the, you know, entire uh, Jewish people to, and if you had a problem and you would be able to go and look, uh, the Kohen would be the one to determine whether or not you were ritually impure or ritually pure. And that's what this whole portion um, is talking about. And it's really fascinating uh, to talk, you know, the, the Talmud talks about why we get into ritual impurities and things like that and where it comes from and what's the reasoning behind it. But the the portion doesn't get into it at all. But I just found something really interesting about the Kohanim not just being the people taking care of the uh, sacrifices and the elevated ritual, but it's also dealing with these like, you know, blemishes on your skin and uh, whether or not you're pure or not because you might be impure. Um, and I actually found this a fa- this, uh, this an interesting midrash, right, an interesting teaching um, of, the, of the early rabbis that talk about um, what's going on with this and why um, the kohanim are the ones that are actually responsible for doing this, right? Because you would think that it's not quite um, re- priestly to go around and look at skin lesions and discolorations and stuff like that. No, I don't know. Like, did if you were a Kohen, would you train? No, I've to always wanted to do that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so there's actually something really interesting that says that when Moses heard that his brother was going to be the one and his brothers and his nephews were going to be the ones to check this stuff out, he goes to like, you know, God and he asks God, right? Like, this is like kind of gross. Like, why are you doing this, right? Um, does, you know, you know, is this really Aaron's, like, is this befitting Aaron's position to go look at skin lesions and stuff like that? And God responds and says, well, you know, he gets all of these priestly gifts, he should be able to work for it. And there's another Midrash that I found that is even more interesting and, and says it in even more sharper language um, that says, you know, that... Um, as much as they receive the gifts, right, all of these truma and and all of the, the the and see the Jews, right, and at the highest moments of their of their life, right, when they go and offer sacrifices and elevated in in moments of worship, they should see people and they're in their troubled times, right, in times when they might be impure, and so that they don't always think about the rabbi or the priest as somebody who you just go to when things are going great, but you should be able to go when things are going not so great either. So basically, I, what I'm getting from this is that Jewish mothers were always right, that they always wanted their, their children to be dermatologists because it is truly the higher calling and the best position you could possibly have. That's, this is what I'm hearing from you. Yes, absolutely. I used to say, though, that the worst type of, of Jewish doctor, of doctor to be as a Jew was a dermatologist simply because, and you've seen this in shul, like Kiddush, right? People come up to you, not you, but like if you're a dermatologist and they, you know, listen, I know I should make an appointment. I know I got to make an appointment. I'm going to come to the office, but just do me a favor. Can you look at this i think it you know it might be something can you just have a look quickly and i know i'll make an appointment don't worry and and it's like you don't want to be that guy who's like the dermatologist because you can't do that if instead you should be like an epidemiologist because nobody comes up to you and says like i think i have ebola or you know it might be hantavirus i'm not sure but maybe i know i should make an appointment nobody tells you that at kiddish except for the past two years right that's what happens in Shul if you're an epidemiologist is that everybody comes up to you and says, listen, tell me your take on COVID. I mean, really, is this a thing? Is this not a thing? So maybe dermatologist is actually the better, you know, career. I would say so. I would absolutely agree. On that note. 
Now's the time in our show where we like to talk about the nachas of the week, uh, the things that have been making us feel good uh, about uh, something good and Jewish, something uh, over the past week. Alana, what's your nachas of the week? My nachas of the week is also related to the Mile End. My boyfriend came down with me to stay in Montreal for the course of my rehearsal period, and I've gotten him addicted to Montreal bagels. And I'm very proud of myself because he's a Torontonian. He's like fourth generation Torontonian. And for the longest time, I was like, you have to try Montreal bagel. It's nothing like you've ever tasted. And he was like, I don't really see how that could be. And then we are staying really close to St. Vieter, and uh, we went and got a hot bagel right off of the thing and his life has changed he's been back like a thousand times and then yesterday he wanted me to add this because i told him i was going to use this for my nachas he went to fairmount so that he could compare and he he has to go back a few more times to have a fair comparison but so far his take is that he likes the taste better of the bagels at saint Vieter, but he likes the texture better at fairmount and we'll see what happens i'll keep you posted alana what type of Jew is your boyfriend who has never had a Montreal bagel, who is from Toronto and could have easily taken the bus, the train, the car, or even at a store picked it up, who has never tried a Montreal bagel? What is wrong with this? We need to, we need to meet him. What is wrong with him? There are so many Jews that I've met in Toronto who literally like don't know what a Montreal bagel is, and it blows my mind. How is that possible? Okay, Toronto listeners, how have you never tried a Montreal bagel in your life? So sad. This is this is wounding. Like it's possible that he's he's been to Montreal a couple times. Maybe he's maybe he tried it a few years ago, but like clearly not fresh and like right off the thing. So, you know, Torontonians like to think that they're in like the center of the universe and that so Montreal bagel that's too far, you know? We got to teach them the way of the real bagel. Alana, are you team Saviator or team Montreal, uh, team Fairmount? To be honest, I haven't had uh, a Fairmount bagel in a really long time. I kind of just like went on the St. Theater train and then just was like, that's the bagel. So uh, I don't know. So if he chooses ultimately like team Fairmount, is it like a deal breaker? Is it over? It's not over. Um, I think my family prefers St. Theater. So I was like, that's why I showed it to him first. But you know, he's entitled. Like we there are wars people start about this and it's pretty divided. I hear that. So we'll see what happens. David, what's your nachas? Alana asked earlier about the Oscars and was there any Jewish related stuff? Well, well, Alana, here is my nachas. So I want to give a shout out to Marley Matlin, who is in the new movie Coda. Uh the Coda won for best film and for best male actor. And if people don't know who Marley Matlin is, she's a wonderful actor. You know, in 1987, she won for Best Actress for Children of a Lesser God. But what people might not know about is she is hilarious. She has done roasts for Comedy Central in the past, and I think she could kick Chris Rock's comedic butt any day of the week. All right. What's yours? Uh, I didn't have a lot of stuff go across my radar this week um, until late this afternoon. Um, I opened up my Apple Music and a new single popped up by one of my absolute favorite um, Jewish artists, uh, Ishai Rebo. I'm sure you've heard me talk about him in the past and it's just a single, but like it really put a pop in my, uh, you know, step the rest of the day um it's called lo nafsik lachlom right we do not uh, we do not stop to uh stop dreaming um it's a wonderful song go check it out um a new single by a great artist is always a good thing um in my books so ishai rebo thank you for uh making my uh day and adding to my nachas of the week. Thanks for putting a pop in Abby's step. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of April 1st, Shabbat Rosh Chodesh Parshat Tazria. 
Our producer is Michael Freeman, technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave a comment and rating on the platform of your choice. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. W-